Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, co-host today, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Tony. Tony, how are you doing? Great. Thank you, Sean. Uh, winding up the year here and looking forward to the next. Fantastic. And as we talk about the next, one of the things we wanted to do with this podcast today was look ahead. What do we think we're going to be seeing in 2023? So, Tony, as we um, enter 2023, I think we've got to look at the past 2022. We saw Log4j and the, all the great work that you've been doing, both at CIS and uh, other organizations in terms of uh, building and sustaining capability, resilience and understanding um, really the, the pressures that are put on for a digital society. And then we've also seen the flip where we've seen, um, obviously, um, the Russian cyber potential issues, um, obviously war, conflict, uh, have brought up many different uh, spaces of concern. And I think we're really looking at industrial control systems, our critical infrastructure, uh, and what we need to do to protect uh, those elements. So as we look ahead, we're going to take a few of these items, we're going to expand, we're going to expound, we're going to uh, see what we think is uh, going to be coming in 2023. But Tony, um, why don't we start and start, let's Think about 2023, and um, what are your thoughts as we move uh, into this new year? Yeah, that's it's a, a challenging notion here. But as you said, there's so much going on, and you know, looking back over the last, not just the last year, but the last several years, I, I'd call this the mainstreaming of cybersecurity. You know, we're really seeing the implications of, for, for example, the underpinnings of technology to support elections or national policies, you know, or the projection of force uh, nation to nation or impacts on the economy. And, and uh, it's, you know, again, I grew up in this business where you, you argued about how technically bad something was, right? The, a flaw in a piece of software or, or a failure of a protocol or whatever. But, you know, um, th those are interesting to the heavy duty practitioners, but not of, to the general population. Right, the impact of you know we saw gas lines not that long ago, or uh, you know again uh, changes in uh, in in the inflation, or you know all these things are what affect people's lives. And so when it when it comes to that, that's when you get a uh, you know I think a, a sort of a social awakening. So so let me start <laughs> since you're challenged here on how I've been consistently not quite right for the last couple of years. <laughs> Why I think I might be right this year because all this is about the. Uh, the the uh, convergence of uh, technology, public policy, and economy, something like that. You know, and people have been studying this for some years. But this notion of seeing you know, the dependency that we have on technology and the opportunity, right? We're, we're living in an amazing information age, but it's also made us uniquely vulnerable but from, from parties that have a vested interest or to encourage behavior of a certain type or to sort of... Um, bring people together for causes good and bad. And so we're seeing all that. We're seeing the reaction of uh, governments trying to figure out what their role is and, and what should be regulated, what should be encouraged. And all this comes together in some big swirl 
that uh, has to be sorted out at some point, right? And you, if you look back historically, you know, we have to we had to worry about things like automotive safety and public health and uh, you know the civil engineering of uh, public infrastructure like bridges and so forth and the safety of flying on a commercial aircraft. And you know, there's always a bit of a wild west followed by some reaction, overreaction, you know, by both uh, industry in terms of safety, in terms of um, market incentives, in terms of what the regulators want to regulate or can regulate and, and the pushback from, you know, industry or the population. So I think we're, you know, and uh, every year I think it's going to be the year or, but I don't know that's going to be a thing. I think it's just a gradual awakening. And we at CIS are really involved in working with the states in particular because of our MSISAC mission uh, to look at things like the, how are states trying to encourage the voluntary adoption of better cyber practices? And those are often defined by some of the work that we do, in addition to other standards like the NIST cybersecurity framework. So that's a, think of that as an attempt to align public policy to encourage better technical behavior, but in a way that's acceptable, right? That rather than try to top-down regulate it, it's how can I encourage the marketplace to move in this direction? and provide either a negative or a positive incentive for folks to move forward. So, so that has been building, I'd say, again, it won't be one event. It'll be the sum of many events. And I think that is, um, you know, part of the backdrop of how I view a lot of the things that I think will be coming and that will, uh, eventually <laughs> influence our lives. But I, you know, I, I keep thinking it's going to be the year for the last couple of years, but, and I don't know that 2023 will be the year, but there's clearly momentum now that was not there, uh, even a year or two ago. Absolutely. Well, I think to your point, the momentum starts to increase. And whether we see that catalyst that pushes it to where this becomes the year, I think to your point is more, it's these incremental steps that we're just getting better gradually. And we're starting to integrate, I think is the, you know, one of the most important things, because it's not easy to uh, look at SLTTs um, in some of these spaces. And then there's just, you know, guarantee me security and do it this way. And it's, okay, well, resources, training, time, uh, what's the scope? How much control is enough? Uh, you know, all of these questions are starting to slowly be answered or really, I think more importantly, understood. I think the problem starting to be understood to where now we can start applying solutions. Again, you know, obviously we, we mentioned the MSI sec and the number of um, capabilities that we provide in this space to help solve parts of these problems to get us to a point where we've, you know, built an element of maturity in our underlying security program, but effectively we've strengthened the underlying foundation on which rests all of the, you know, this public infrastructure uh, and really the way we're, you know, managing our digital lives at this point. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I love the word that you used, Sean, which was integrate, you know, to bring together these multiple variables here and, uh, you know, this is not a plug for, for the Center for Net Security, but I think we do fill a unique place here. So the ability to integrate, for example, to the, we can define better technical practices, but why don't people use them? Well, you have to be able to influence public policy. You have to be able to work with the marketplace to start to shape it in the right direction to make certain you know, better practices available and more attractive, but do it in a way that people know how to buy it. And so you have to kind of pull a number of things together. And I think we're one of the few places that tries to look at that problem holistically and can do it in a way that is both neutral to the market and independent of the government. So I think that, that I love the way you, you phrased that and brought that together, because I think that is a, a, um, 
you, you know, is, is what it will take, right, for us to get forward. This, this idea of, you know, there won't be a magic kumbaya moment where government industry and the buyer all sort of come together. As you said, it'll, uh, things will start to make more sense because we're better able to define practices that have value in security. And then by being specific about that, then you can say, well, what in the marketplace do I want to encourage or discourage, you know, either purchasing or uh, uh, behavior by end adopters? And then what are the incentives that we can put in place either in the market or uh, directly or into public policy to, to bring all that together? So I think that is a, you know, this integration of, of this, being able to look at it holistically uh, is really critical. It's one of the things that we looked at, you know, when I, when you you mentioned the log4j and the, uh, uh, serving this year on the, our first time through on the Cyber Safety Review Board. And that really brought it home to me. You know, I, I wrote a little prequel, I don't know if you saw it, to, to you know, before the first meeting, like what do I expect in my personal blog? And one of them was, I will be astounded if we find a technical answer or technical issue that we haven't thought about at length for years. Right? It's not about a, a, we've missed some magic solution or some clever piece of technology, we just haven't looked at the whole system. And that, I think, was one of the lessons of a log4j, right? That is, uh, you know, and th- this whole issue of open source, uh, uh, you know, one side benefit of all this was it really made us think about open source, source security. And practitioners have understood this for years, but not it's not something that's visible broadly. You know, that is, so much of our infrastructure is built upon this notion of, you uh, a common problem, common development, common sharing of tools, building block approach to, you know, and that's what's given us the amazing resources that we have, but it also makes us uniquely fragile. And it also points out, you know, uh, with all the best intentions of open source, you can't possibly, the developers can't possibly anticipate all the potential uses of what they have created. You know, that is, uh, you know, we, we sort of think of, well, the way we get a handle on, for example, software development might be through threat modeling. Let's model all the threats that might come after this piece of software, right, in its life cycle. And that makes more sense when you have a vendor who, in effect, is building the life cycle. But when you know, when you have sort of volunteer armies building pieces of code, they do an honest and you know professional effort to, to build uh, high quality software, but they can't possibly anticipate all the security implications downstream. And so what you get is this cascade of people integrating pieces of code that become parts of something that's integrated somewhere else. Everyone's making some risk decision down the road with really uh, scant information about about this, right? And the, the developers couldn't, you know, we're, we're not capable yet of producing perfect code that will operate as expected under all conditions. And so we just sort of no. unknown cascading risk and folks like you, now you wind up with, okay, but now we, we have a real case here where we're an enterprise. And so you have to face that question, like how much confidence do I need to be able to make this a part of our enterprise and, and build policy and so forth around it? So, so you, you get the receiving end of that, right? I certainly do. Yes, no, absolutely. You know, you you talk vendor risk management, you look at the integration of this open source capability, and it's, you know, an uncontrolled uh, behemoth in some cases of where these particular libraries, it's not necessarily understood where they exist within your environment. So it's this shadow element that you're um, weighing the responsibility against and trying to understand all of that is obviously a monumental task. And uh, and, you know, not one entity 
I think maybe has it uh, as good as we should, but it does lead to this open source uh, supply chain security issue of how we're going to understand and manage the respective problem. Again, advocate for open source. It's it's fantastic. There's you know great capability in that space, and plus, as we had mentioned, under resourced uh, organizations can utilize this type of technology, this capability to increase their underlying maturity at obviously very low cost. We just need to install, maintain, and operate that capability. But ultimately, what are we bringing into our environment? How do we manage that particular risk? And obviously, you know, we're entering into a a vulnerability marketplace where these are, you know, vulnerabilities are commodities at this point is uh, we've seen such a commercialization of cybercrime and, and utilizing these vulnerabilities both um, at the national level and, you know, from an individual level, uh, you know, we see uh, these types of bugs being used uh, and capitalized on uh, across different attack platforms, attack methodologies, uh, and also as a as I mentioned, a commodity is where you know you can start to look at these things from a researcher's perspective, uh, and you can actually earn a living, a very nice living, uh, with uh, with that type of capability. So it's from different fronts, and it's completely mm-hmm. this open marketplace now. Yeah, it, it it highlights you know your point there. It highlights that. Um, so I don't want to over dramatize the attacker, you know, that they're <laughs> tall. But there's a lot of uh, professionalization of the of the criminal side of cyber over the last several years. And uh, sort of clarity of objective helps that, right? People know what they're trying to do. And I, sometimes I quip that, uh, you know, if you want to see um, uh, capitalism in action, don't study the good guys, study the bad guys. So you have this notion of, right, here's a marketplace of vulnerabilities, of flaws, of tools, of reconnaissance, right? And uh, the sort of specialization there's a bit of a Darwinian, Darwinian market forces at work here, right? If, you, if you're not strong enough to survive or you can't offer, uh, for example, um, uh, criminal infrastructure at a, at a rate that makes sense or uh, monetization services, then you don't survive in that market. So you see a more, you know, because of the clarity of objective, right? You know, either theft of resources or whatever, there's, there's a, a structure and a kind of a cleanliness to the attack side, unfortunately. And when, when there's a, but there's a feeling on defense that we're all kind of defending ourselves, right? Uh, good luck with that. And I think that's, that's part of it. You know, the, what, what struck me when I looked at Log4j also, and this is not an original thought, but I said, you, you have this case. And I think it was also true with solar winds, uh, Sean, you know, you could have an enterprise, for example, that, like the one you're responsible for, you can have individual enterprises make very what seems to be a reasonable, rational decision, including about security, individually, right? You say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure of the risk here. I'm going to go with the market leader. I'm going to go with the one that U.S. government uses. I'm going to go with the tried and true. This hunk of open source has been used. Oh my gosh, worldwide, right? This, so the likelihood of some, you know, some surprise is, is lowered. That that would be a reasonable decision, I think, by an individual enterprise owner. And yet you look at the systemic level and you say, wait a minute, you know, half of my U.S. government or more is dependent upon a single vendor. So at the system level, that might not be such a wise, uh, you know, decision, but for every individual participant it might be a perfectly rational decision. <laughs> you know, and that's a, to me, that was, yep. that, that just jumped out and I go, wait a minute. Okay. So what is it that we're missing here in the both larger understanding, right, at the systemic level, say U.S. government or U.S. economy or whatever, uh, vice the role of the individual decision maker and how would I align those in a way 
uh, the, the problem that you pointed out, I th- what, what happened was, as you said, um, if you're honest about it, knowing just what all your dependencies are is an incredibly complicated and dynamic problem, right? So you have to assume you will never know. And so you, you have to, at some point, make a decision now. And so you, so, you, so you do the best you can. And then when the problem cascades to a bigger level, like with a log4j, what you find is because every individual system owner right, doesn't have perfect understanding or even reasonable understanding in many cases, then you have no way to assess the risk at, say, a U.S. economy level, right? Because, I mean, people are still wandering around trying to figure out where is log4j in my world, right? And they wound up not finding it themselves, but asking their intermediate vendors and so forth to help them. So, so again, this, this takes us back to this integration word that you mentioned, right? All the, how do I bring all this together and uh, try to align, again, the, you want people to make individual decisions that are reasonable that add up. To, and I think we're kind of there in most domains of risk in our lives, like, uh, you know, public policy, like choosing to fly on a commercial aircraft, except during the holidays here, apparently, uh, you know, there's so much, so much chaos. So that's a different sort of risk. Uh, yes. But I think that that's part of it also. Can, let me ask you kind of an off the wall question, if you don't mind, Sean. Of course. So, so uh, some of our activity today, I would put back to a, to the uh, reaction to COVID and the work from home and all that stuff. So you wound up doing a lot of things, right? Because of those times that I, I think y- y- you both did because we had to, but I think a number of them have positioned us well for 2023 and beyond. And by that, I mean, things like, you know, like once you move to a work from home environment, you go, where's my data? <laughs> you know, where is it? And just watching you in action, uh, you know, with, with great admiration, uh, sort of figuring out those kinds of problems, putting in the machinery to uh, understand where things are, to manage and so forth, seems to me we sort of got forced in, a, in some way into things that will turn out to be helpful to us. When you look at, you know, we look at some of the uh, predictions we have in our, you know, the multi-cloud environments and things like that, it, it turns out to be, oh, this, we actually have prepared ourselves uh, you know, some sometimes with purpose, sometimes it just worked out well. But any thoughts on that? I don't know if I'm misreading this, but it sure seems no. to me like we've done a lot of things like, hey, because of what the work that folks like Sean and our IT folks have done, huh, we're, we're better prepared than we were, you know, a couple of years. And would we have gotten there without being sort of pushed to it by the social conditions? No, actually, I think you're absolutely right. I think the uh, what we've done is reframed the context of the underlying problem by um, approaching it from a different perspective. And you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. You know, COVID and other elements had set us up where through design, we, you know, that was a, a day switchover. But then it gets into the consequence when that particular period of time was, oh, this is going to last a few months. We'll be back in the office before no time. And, and now you you know, kind of transition to where we are today. And it's, no, this is our environment. So ultimately it becomes an element of both discovery and understanding the business context of the situation that you're in. And that changes because really you're starting to think more, this is normality versus, you know, this, uh, the on-premise capability. And so one of the things that, you know, I've been playing around with in, in my head and I'm working with uh, Scott Hall, a, a, a recent uh, uh, participant on one of our podcasts talking about security architecture and zero trust is how does that decision now reframe our approach? And we've seen policy coming through at the federal level, 
um, you know, touting zero trust as a capability, zero trust as the next level of maturity that we want to see across um, all of our infrastructure. Um, but now we've had to reframe the approach to zero trust because at the start it was the on-prem zero trust. Now it's changed to, well, you know, that there are no more walls, right? You know, it's talking about everybody where they sit at home uh, and integrating that capability. And to your point, and one of the, you know, my... Um, one of my, how do I, I, biggest peccadillos, as it were, here is the data, because that's one of the things that we um, obviously is one of my philosophies is start with the data and, you know, you'll understand the system, you'll understand the business process. And so being able to integrate, manage, control, classify and review that from a business perspective um, with a different type of architecture, with a different type of approach has been um, challenging. And it really does get into these ideas of the application of technology, because I, I just, you know, I'm just going to hit on the multi-cloud piece, is I think, as I see it in 2023, there's the adoption of multi-cloud, because there's capabilities that uh, either we're being moved to um, respectfully with particular vendors to be cloud-centric, uh, we no longer want you to be on-prem because that model has started to, obviously, as we're in this new context of business, um, we're starting to move away from. So we want to promote you to the cloud. And obviously, we're, you know, vast cloud users here uh, at CIS. But it's utilizing those capabilities. And then it's, again, utilizing the term we've been using is that integration of both of those technologies to create a security platform where we can then, you know, kind of, uh, cross the streams, as it were, of these multi-cloud implementations for us to be ultimately successful, right? It's uh, ultimately my responsibility is to produce business value. Why not degrading it with, uh, you know, uh, an over <laughs> overbearing risk profile, as it were? You know, we've got to calibrate our underlying appetite and tolerance for that risk. And it kind of gets into the point that you mentioned with, you know, these integrations of tools, open sources, you know, where's that particular tolerance? Is it, you know, a complete knowledge of our entire system? Well, you're going to be working for a very, very long time to make a decision about any patch upgrade or anything you're doing in the environment in order to understand the tweaks and the changes in that functionality. So you're going to be doing a lot of diffing between the current application and its patch uh, to see uh, what's being changed and what's been integrated. Or, you know, do you move forward and, um, Really, in some cases, it's trying to, I don't want to say best guess, but it's the best approach. And you mentioned that with utilizing vendors that, you know, everybody else is utilizing and, you know, we'll, you know, throw a quadrant in there as for a particular vendor. And, you know, if they say this is good, we'll, we'll utilize that. And that's a good decision. But ultimately, think about it from a threat perspective. And you mentioned this holistically, is this is if everybody's utilizing that particular tool, well, there's where's my uh, you know adversary going to be looking for? Oh, right. well, everybody's <laughs> just created there. a shiny target okay. here. <laughs> exactly, it's just a matter of time and resources before I can uh, yeah. uh, now break that target uh, and build uh, mm -hmm. or discover uh, vulnerability and exploit those. Now, one of the uh, the lines that that um, I appreciate that you you wind up walking, Sean, uh, you know, again in cooperation with RIT, is this. Um, management of policy and at the same time supporting business objectives. So I grew up more in an environment and I won't name any names here, but you know, a good faith effort. Here's our security policy and take it or leave it. 
here it is, and you violate it. But you know, then you always get, but mission imperative. I have to be able to move these kinds of files, these very large photographic files, for example, or whatever. And uh, too bad against our policy. And of course, you know, I always said if you uh, make security onerous or too expensive, uh, your users now become your attackers. And remember when uh, Dropbox became a verb? <laughs> you know, that is, they, they go around, right? And it's not because people are evil in, in 99.9% of the cases. It's that they feel like they have a job to do, right? They are trying to fulfill some part of the mission. And so, you know, security can either be an impediment or an enabler to that. And the, the traditional model is we've defined the safe procedures and you follow these or, or you know, for, or take it or leave it. And then again, people get people are creative and they're determined, so they'll find a way to work around. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think the uh, focus at CIS has been to let's let's look at this again holistically. You know, let's integrate all these issues here and decide what what is a prudent thing that we can live with to meet mission imperative. You know, and that's the kinds of discussions that I think are much healthier about them. That is. Uh, we're incapable of providing perfect security. That's it's not the issue, you know. Yes or no. The issue is, can we can we operate successfully to fulfill our mission in a way that helps us that in a way that in which we feel like we understand the risks and can manage them intelligently, and recognize that you know we're not we're never going to be a hundred percent right. So I appreciate that, you know, you often walk that line and uh, have been very uh, progressive in sort of juggling all those and. You know, you can't make everyone happy uh, all the time, but I, I feel pretty good about where we are in CIS in terms of, you know, when I when I came on board again, no names here. Uh, there was there was a lot of classic shadow IT floating around out there, right? Because people felt like they had things to do that weren't going to be supported by the yep. uh, company, by the infrastructure, and again, all good intentions, but then the risks are completely out of sight of the company. Right, we're unable to make those kind of trade-offs that you talked about. Let me uh, play on one thing here. So, one in our um, year-end uh, 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 blog and uh, looking ahead, uh, Kathleen Moriarty, our, our CTO, offers some thoughtful uh, insight into things like, uh, you know, the terms that she uses are shift left and shared responsibility for cloud and things like that. And and you talked about, you know, we're uh, the the uh, completely on-premise model has really disappeared from our world. And you have to look at these things. Uh, what about these issues? Uh, so now your work, you know, our, our data is now resident on in multiple vendors, and uh, there is a, a belief, right, that we need to push more responsibility left, or earlier in the life cycle, or sort of more broadly at the service provider here. What about those discussions from your perspective, right? So now you, your, your, some of your responsibility is being shared with a cloud vendor, for example. In fact, multiple, mm-hmm. and how you think your way through that and make a make a, a choice, and then pr- be able to present that, for example, to our board. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, that's. Um... I'll be honest with you, as we mentioned, the shared responsibility model, and obviously, you know, I consult Kathleen and, uh, you know, she's mm-hmm. been obviously yes. a, a guest on this podcast many times <laughs> is um, because of her expertise here is really to understand uh the delineators, the demarcation of responsibility is a very, very interesting um discussion that I've had with her and our CIO, uh, Angelo Marco Tulio. It's uh, really trying to understand and conceptualize that because I'll give you the honest um, point that I've had to do, Tony, is I've had to relearn some things in terms of responsibility and being able to adopt the shared model. Now, in my perspective, when I'm working from a business context, I'm a little bit more risk averse. I want to try and, you know, tighten some controls Mm -hmm. and 
you know, like building the policies. I've, I've got a lot of policies and standards that I like to, uh, um, I won't say dictate, <laughs> but suggest <laughs> control. <laughs> but now we get into the shared responsibility element and the shift left, which I obviously completely agree with it. You know, we need to see security earlier in the life cycle in order for it to grow later in that life cycle. You got that seed of control needs to be planted very early. And one of the things that we get to, though, is the attestation capability. And it's something that Kathleen mentions. And it's mm -hmm. so important that we build an understanding and also a shared um, communication strategy with our partners in this space to understand the premise. And I'm going to give another element here, Tony, as well. It's so as well as an organization, because we're one of the things I, I try and liken it to is we're not really looking at security through a microscope here. I'm not, you know, not analyzing every piece. I'm looking at it through a telescope. I want to try and see the whole thing holistically. But doing that then helps us build product and best practices and also provide blogs and podcasts and things where we can give our perspective. And here's what we've done while working with these partners in the space to understand mm -hmm. the security model, to be able to provide you a model that we can work with. And again, you know, we don't need to be cutting edge in order to do this type of work. It's just looking at it from our controls perspective and just the, the great history CIS has and, and the intelligence and the expertise and everything that we've built with our partners and members so that we can then promote, you know, this is the way we've, uh, you know, looked at this underlying problem. And as we've grown as a business, and, you know, you mentioned this all the time in, in our work together is, we have a story to tell in this space because not only are we providing the best practices, we have to adopt them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, ultimately that that rests with myself and, and Angelo Marco Tulio to implement that capability at our level, but then also look for new opportunities that we can provide then as best practice. And as we get into the shared responsibility model, multi-cloud adoption, it's looking at these again. It's like our word of the day is integration of how those build upon one another because there is a reliance, you know, I've transferred some of my risk to a to a vendor in this space where I would have taken that, you know, taken on that risk. And in some cases in the past, I would have felt more comfortable now because of that integration, because of building that understanding. You know, it's it's meeting our level of risk appetite for, for myself and then also, uh, you know, reporting to the board and, and obviously our senior leadership in terms of where we stand in terms of both control, implementation, capability, oversight, monitoring, and ultimately secure operationalization of those capabilities. Yeah, I think that is, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I do appreciate, yeah, your message there, right? We're, this has been part of my story since coming on board. We're, we're a, an advice giving organization through best practices, right? Then we have a large following there. We're the only one that I know of at any scale that also is a 24-7 nationwide, you know, very large-scale operational mission dealing with state, local, tribal, territorial governments. And so we have to kind of live in the bigger environment, but we're also a modern IT company, right, who has risky partnerships and all the issues of technology and uh, cloud providers and have to deal with all the same policies and, you know, regulations and uh, internationally, et cetera. Uh, we've got lots of data. We've got... Uh, lots of partners with complicated business relationships. And so being able to pull that together and the approach we have taken, as you've described well, is uh, 
you know, we're trying to bring these together. We're not trying uh, counting on gold-plated, unique approaches here. We might have done that in government, right? We could say, well, we can, you know, cordon off part of our problem with a concertina wire and a 50 caliber machine guns outside the gates, but that doesn't work really for a little <laughs> nonprofit uh, with a work-from-home uh, workforce. Uh, and, and or you, we could sort of count on, you know, we're going to have technical. We can throw lots of money at a at a kind of bleeding edge technical solution. Instead, we, we, we have chosen to live in the marketplace, right? And then to share that. You know, so uh, my, my advice to any CISO is uh, go, go check out any blog that Sean or Angelo <laughs> from IT has written because you're, you're, we're trying to be transparent about that, right? To share that lesson because we know that our adopters face those same problems. And I, th- I think that's a really uh, neat aspect of it. So, so you're, but your point about uh, Kathleen's stuff, yeah, she's, she's, um, looking ahead in, in, you know, by nature of both her job uh, and, and uh, background and this idea of, you know, uh, and nothing, I, I, sometimes I think zero trust, it might be the most uh, brilliantly named technical, you know, direction here. It's like, Oh, zero trust. Great. You know, now I don't have to worry about the problem. Well, it turns out you actually have to worry more in some sense, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's more accurate name would be starting from zero trust, not zero trust. Now that you have to create or generate create trust with every transaction, with every process, with every activity, which means a, uh, a serious rethinking of our technical architecture and our policies and our management of IT and so forth. And so that's, those are the kinds of things. And, and some of that can't be done uniquely by us, but we need the industry to move. And so the, t- the topics like attestation, right? So where do I start? Where, from where can I start? One doesn't create trust out of zero. You have to right. create it. You have to generate it, move it, right? Convey it to others and negotiate. And this is all, you know, the goal is as much of this as possible. It's happening under the hood. So I think that is worth some thought. And I, and for, for any of our listeners, certainly recommend, uh, go, go and take a look at some of the things that uh, Kathleen had hi- highlighted in our uh, uh, blog on the topic for uh, 2023. Another thing that uh, I know you, you live and breathe that, uh, uh, Sean, I might ask you about is the effect of, um, uh, privacy regulations. You know, I know you've closely followed, uh, obviously, the uh, GDPR work, and then what's happening in the U.S. in terms of, um, you know, the, the the movement toward a better understanding and management and reporting on privacy. Any any thoughts on how you th- see that shaping up over the next year, or the things that we're doing to prepare? Yeah, no, there's um, massive shifts in the space, and, and and really, you know, it's Article 37 of GDPR and others uh, mm-hmm. integrate both privacy and cybersecurity together mm-hmm. because it's really the data um, controlled. Obviously, it's the context of the data, how it's being used, managed, and controlled. And what we've seen is, you know, um, May 25th, 2018, I'll never forget the date, uh, that's GDPR became uh, enacted, has really evolved Ultimately, I think my role in an organization, there are, you know, chief uh, data privacy officers now. There's there's a whole, uh, you know, industry now focused on privacy. And so there should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, as a member of the uh, International Association of Privacy Professionals, it is imperative that it, we understand this both from a risk perspective and also the util- utility of the data given that our membership is worldwide, it is very important to understand privacy regulations, not only in the United States, and a few being enacted uh, this year um, in January and I believe July, is we, we need to know the scope 
ultimately, in some cases, our nonprofit status, you know, eliminates and our utility or management of data, you know, with respect to Utah, Virginia, Colorado, and these things is how does that apply to us? And in some cases, they are very specific focus. You know, we want to uh, really focus on those larger organizations that could be gathering and selling data uh, as, you know, data now is a commodity. Obviously, that's, uh, you know, in the information age is the commodity. Um, how that's being used, managed, and controlled, but then ultimately there's an effect on the market where others that may not be necessarily in that space are still compliant to those specific regulation. But then the problem that I see is you've got multiple states with regulation. We started with CCPA in California, uh, and now that is you know moving across the country. There's um, you know basically there are trackers now looking at the privacy regulations that are currently you know within respective stages of becoming um, part of our uh, regulatory environment. And so as we manage that, it's um, ultimately becomes this de facto is if you have you know data from one particular state and another is which one is the most stringent. Let me use that, and then it covers me. So basically, it's you know this attrition of which is the the hardest to comply with. I comply with that. I inherit the others, uh, and basically that's in some cases. Again, I'm not going to say that's everybody's privacy program, but ultimately that's the way it needs to be managed. Uh, and then you look worldwide. You know, obviously GDPR. We're seeing China and South Africa, Canada, all of the countries basically looking. And, and so I think ultimately. Um, whether I don't think it's 2023, Tony, but a little right. bit further afield, I think there's the federal levels just going to have to uh, kind of come in and, and set the space or set a tone uh, for the United States and, and the utility of our data in a, you know, obviously yeah. in this worldwide. That seems to be the way it works. And again, we, we get to participate in that because of the, yes. the multi-state ISAC mission. So it's, it's more than watching, right? We're, we're trying to help shape that towards commonality wherever possible. But it seems like that's just the way these complicated things work out. There's some, some bellwether states that take the lead, uh, you know, for whatever reason, subject to whatever local conditions uh, in terms of the legal and regulatory environment. And then eventually, you know, the vendors go, this is crazy, right? We can't deal with 50 states or 50, you know, 50 plus, but the uh, other territories and so forth. Uh, and so we need some coherence here at a national level. And uh, yeah, as you're right, that, that's a slow moving train, but it seems kind of inevitable. And uh, but until then, folks like you, you know, have to make a risk decision. Right. And like you said, you might take the uh, whatever the least or highest common denominator, depending on your perspective and and just work with that the best that you can, uh, recognizing that a lot of that stuff is not so crisply defined that you can even assess that. And we, that's the issue we've we talked, uh, I think, in that blog also about reasonableness as the term of art in, uh, in the law yes. that is. We're all kind of interpreting, uh, you know, CIS doesn't get to, even when it uses our practices, we don't get to define it. We can make a statement about what we think, you know, how it should be applied or could be applied. Uh, but some of that just gets worked out right through court decisions or regulatory uh, findings or, or whatever. And so, you know, that that's part of the uh, the world that we have in front of us. So, so uh, yeah, can I take you on another left turn, Sean? Because this is uh, <laughs> Michael. So you, you brought up one of the things I hadn't thought about for the next year and that, that made it into the blog, which is about the uh, impact of AI and, uh, for example, chat GPT. You know, I, I hadn't really followed this. It's just I, I've been through like three or four waves of, of uh, AI is going to change our world, you know, over the last 40 years. And uh, so shame on me. I didn't pay as much attention. But then you see the stuff that's popping out there around 
you know, generating basic ad copy or, uh, you know, marketing information or whatever with very little input, producing plausible, at least decent starting point stuff. And I thought, huh. So that, that's just one use case. But the broader application of, uh, of AI, you know, we, we pay human beings a lot and they're scarce in numbers to do really massive grunt work around correlating things and sort of learning from history and looking for repeat patterns of behaviors by attackers and so forth. It seems like, you know, would lend itself to a more um, uh, analytic approach and a more structured approach that saves humans a lot of the grunt work and sort of gets them focused on maybe what's unique, not what's the same. But you're, I know you're, so you've looked at this a little bit more. Any thoughts about any implications that you see coming up in the next year or in terms of the cybersecurity business in particular? Oh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, I'll be a little bit facetious, Tony, mm -hmm. but for the last few years, we could have played uh, buzzword bingo at any conference and we could have hit AI and machine learning, um, you know, over multiple years. But I do see um, the capability does exist. Um, there, there is obviously the compute power and the ability and there's, you know, defined fields now, obviously, you, you know, we'll throw another uh, buzzword in of data science and being data driven as an organization, which ultimately in the information age, data is the commodity. So we're going to use it, manage it, uh, manipulate control and, and uh, get as much value as we can from it to stay competitive because if we're not doing it obviously the competitors are i think in the one of the things i do want to note is in the cybersecurity space um you know the, the uh i was reading a book i think it was cyber war or something like that of ai versus ai who's got the best ai from respective countries and things you know we it's sensationalized a little bit but it, ultimately there there is capability here as you mentioned you know we're looking at pattern recognition well there's uh machines can do that obviously um, in the blink of an eye compared to a uh, respective analyst. And so it does get to that anomaly detection, as you mentioned, you know, we can get a great baseline that can be monitored, controlled and uh, managed through machine capability. And then when we see anomaly detection, well, now we're building the algorithms and models to look at those to see if those can be traced to a particular anomaly where it's been seen. And one of the other things that I think is huge in this space, Tony, is the the vendors that are providing and managing the data from respective machines. They're building models based on the fact that they've distributed to millions and millions of endpoints, servers, networks, whatever it happens to be, correlating all that together. And, you know, I see something in this respective network. Well, there's a repeatable pattern that now I can look from an anomaly perspective across all of this infrastructure. And so we've just opened up the opportunity for these models to learn at a much faster rate because they have more data. You know, it's this integration, the cloud and, you know, this pervasive scalable elastic capability of cloud has now allowed all of this um, to really come to fruition. So the, the models are getting better because they have more data to generate. And, you know, like you say, backtracing and looking at uh, data from the past, they, they have it. And so the models, uh, I think, are getting a lot stronger and is a more via viable value proposition for the market because we're, we're starting to see that. And, you know, I'll just throw out there the chat GTP, um, just, you know, I think a million users in 10 days. You look at other 
vendors that took months to get to that point and in 10 days a million users it's you know i've been playing around in there been looking at some of the security researchers and what they're doing the you know uh, I, the one i like is and you mentioned um in in some elements is creating a phishing email very little information i need an email to send to click on this particular link and it's generated i mean it's just a cool technology and, and uh, again i think the applications of that are going to be very very interesting uh, as we uh, move through uh, early 2023 and then we'll see um, where it goes from there yeah i think that that's that that feels right sean i think there's again just seeing the sort of popular uptake and you know the focus not on sort of exotic you know beyond the ability of humans to understand but the sort of the the relatively mundane like right? the crafting of again anything from marketing text to, to phishing emails you know we're all, we've already been seeing over the last few years you know auto auto generated uh, news feeds right taking sports scores and box scores and being able to generate plausible you know readable uh copy from those kinds of things or stock market reports and so forth and um i think there's you know, again, it feels different than it has, right? There's there's less overpromising. I think your point on the data ones. I mean, twenty years ago, that was the lament of every researcher I met at you know wherever what was DARPA, IARPA. The, uh, oh, if we only had data to look at, you know, only had data. Well, okay, we're drowning in data now, you know, and of various types of quality, and you know that that introduces a different set of problems about the quality of the data. Is it representative of the population? Can it be poisoned, et cetera, et cetera. But, but it's, it's a different world than it was, you know, not that than it was not that many years ago. And I think it, there it really does open up some opportunities. And my, my view has always been, um, you know, should humans be afraid right? they're going to take us? I, I'm pretty sure there's always great work for smart humans that, but this having watched and been a part of organizations that, the massive kind of grunt work that's involved in instant response, you know, in anomaly management, all those kinds of things, boy, there just feels like there has to be a better way. And uh, that it's ripe for that, right? That it's possible. And that the technology seems to be catching up with, with some of those problems. So I think there's something there that, that it certainly bears watching for all of us. Any other uh, uh, thoughts, Sean, or any other topics that sort of come to mind to you that we haven't talked about or? Would, yeah, there was a um, yeah, kind of a couple. One is, um, you know, I'm looking uh, as well at in the same space with the same vein at automation and the util utility of um, data pattern recognition for security orchestration, automation and response. I think we're going to see an uptick in that. I just think there's, uh, you know, the market's kind of now ready to integrate that with underlying technologies that we've been using for many years, our security incident and event management capabilities. Uh, and like you say, it's now transitioning over to, um, you know, taking the grunt work out of it, as it were. And, you know, some of these patterns are just um, uh, constant that we can, you know, apply respectively an underlying script to automate uh, the response to those. I think that's fantastic. I think that C is really, there's kind of a couple issues there. Um, and again, it's something we can review at another time, but it's, you know, when you take the low level, you know, and automate it, do you lose something from the security analyst that's coming up through, um, you know, and building their career, building their knowledge, and you've taken that away? Does that have, in some effect, 
the underlying knowledge and capability of the security analysts that were coming through. And again, obviously, we're still in a deficit, I think, in our industry of the number of analysts for the number of positions that are required. And so does that take something away or, you know, do we just have the benefit? And it's, you know, in some cases, it's low lying information that, you know, what, maybe 20 years ago, you know, we needed, you know, proper memory management, but now we've taken all that away with abstractive language. And so you're good. You didn't need to know that anyway. Uh, that's, you know, if you want to do some history, God, look at me, what I'm using the terms. I'm now history here and compute. Um, you don't need to know that, you know, we, we've moved beyond it. And maybe that's going to be where we see, you know, security orchestration and the automated capability kind of take away that low level knowledge that future analysts are not going to need to know. It's just something um, that exists, but it's taken care of. Um, or is it going to have a decrement uh, in the near term uh, on yeah. the knowledge of our analysts? I'm not sure. I don't know. I think, you know, in some ways we, again, we, it's, it's easy to romanticize the human element in these. And, and I, I've worked yeah. with some amazing humans, so they're, they're, we should be, I stand in awe of the really great analysts. But also when you you know, we sort of train people to be, uh, say, incident analysts, and and they're it, you know they're looking through that microscope, right? Yeah. And it turns out, you know, it's like red teamers might be really good at finding a way in, but very few that I've met in my lifetime understand very much at all about system administration and architectures and management of complex distributed systems. So their results can be very skewed by their perspective. You know, they don't they they might understand the attack beautifully, but if you ask them for advice on how to fix it, they're looking at the same microscope. Well, put, in pa- put, put Microsoft MS-whatever patch in place. Well, well, that's not the, that's not the root cause issue, right? <laughs> but that's just what they took advantage of. And looking in the opposite direction, the sort of uh, instant analysts, many of them are so deep in the packets and the bits and the fields and the headers that they may not understand all the other defenses that were present at that time or not present at that time, or that failed or succeeded, and how did this stream come to be, right, this this set of things. And so yeah. there, there's a tremendous amount of correlated work, right, that could help put that into better context that is probably beyond the reach of humans to understand that full range, and yet is actually technically sort of in reach. And I think that's, that's a great area to think about, you know, how do I pull Absolutely. that together? And I think that also that, uh, you know, as I, well, like, you said, we, even at CIS, we are very focused on, you know, building a data-derived basis for our best practice recommendations. But being it, uh, deriving it from data does not mean there's a lack of human judgment. What, right. what I always say we're trying to do is we're trying to bound human judgment, know when we need it, right? And what does it take to get to that point and make it clear when, it, when do I need a human judgment to say this is the most likely uh, sequence of uh, actions by the attacker, given I got to hear and given that I saw this, that's a good place for human judgment. And because once you bound it and identify where it is, then you can argue about it responsibly. You could, you know, exactly. that's a good place for that debate that humans can have. But if you don't have that sort of bounding of that, then you're just forever arguing about your opinions. And it's not very a uh, helpful exactly. way to, to sort of put it all together. So. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it affects progress ultimately. And I think it's yeah. another, you know, it's our word of the day is where we get to that integration point is when then the conversation comes to the human based on everything that's been done to, to what you were saying. So absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, Sean, are you basically optimistic for uh, 2023 about the industry and about uh, where things are going? Or I, I am or pessimistic. I am. I'm optimistic. But um, again, we'll, we'll see. Uh, 
inflationary pressures, see what that does mm -hmm. to the economy. And obviously sure. that has a massive, you know, that macroeconomic effect can uh, then either degrade or um, uh, inspire new elements, um, you know, in industry or um, through our adversarial threat models, it, it has a different connotation as we move. But optimistic, uh, I think there's the technology, the capability, and uh, again, just from 2022, the number of security researchers and really want to see more positivity in the space and supporting one another, um, you know, across any of the platforms that we see and what we try to produce. And I know our 2023 is going to be uh, hugely impactful, hopefully, with a lot of different new areas that we're researching and providing uh, guidance for. Uh, we're going to continue our mission and strengthen it even more. So, uh, okay, looking well, forward to twenty. I, I, I share your optimism, Sean. Uh, <laughs> cautiously, you know, caveat the things that you said. And, yes, uh, there has been, you know, my experience with the, for example, looking at the national issues around the Cyber Safety Review Board and things like Log4j. There is, um, you know, these are not things that we haven't thought about in the past. But the level of social awareness of things like the security of open source. Uh, the, you know, the need to be able to make risk decisions, to be able to operationally figure out what's in my environment and then and be able to assess the operation, ongoing operational risk and decide where we, is it, should we put energy and resources. It's never been higher. I think there's a, a growing awareness at the federal level that we uh, this is so vital to the future of the economy, of our society, that we have to be doing something. So I feel, um, you know, basically optimistic about that. But it's like last a closing thought in my pre, in my prequel to that cyber safety review award, I I used a line I, I've often used in talks that uh, in cyber cyber security, um, you know, you can't survive for decades in this business without either being a complete pessimist or a hopeless optimist. And both <laughs> both types of personalities have all the data they need to convince themselves they are 100 percent right. So you it de might depend on how your uh, how your lens is calibrated here, <laughs> yes. how you look at this. But I think you know we we do what we do at CIS because there's a, an optimism, right? That that through collective action we can recognize the problem that we have and we can work across the ecosystem to to make significant improvements. Our our track record says yes, and I think uh, there's there's plenty of reason for that. So, uh, you know, in, in the uh, interest of wishing everyone a great holiday and getting, getting our year kicked off, start right. Thanks to all of our listeners. We, uh, Sean and I really appreciate the chance to share ideas here. And as we often say offline, this is the most time that we get to talk to each other. And <laughs> I think we both find it to be a wonderful educational experience for each of us. And we hope that you all get something out of it also. So with, with that, our... Uh, Thanks for your listenership. Please look for us and subscribe in the usual ways. And uh, from the Center for Internet Security, on behalf of uh, my co-host, Sean Atkinson, and myself, Tony Sager, have a great 2023. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.